Welcome to another episode of Invisible Disco Productions podcast, Writer's Block Party. We're hoping to share the work of emerging artists and break down the all too often mysticized process of creating and developing art. I'm Thea Thronson. And I'm Dana Zbillette. And today we have Jim Keane. Uh, Jim is a carpenter who lives in Northeast Iowa. Artistically speaking, he is the prototypical late bloomer. His first acting role came in his mid-40s. He started college at age 49, and he is yet to publish a single piece of his written work. Jim was cast in several theater productions while in college, essentially getting a call anytime a middle-aged character popped up in a script. Jim also wrote, directed, and performed in his master's thesis project, Ezra and Me, which his daughter, Thea, directed on Zoom for Invisible Disco Productions. These days, when he has the energy, Jim writes short stories, poetry, and play scripts in his spare time, uh, mostly in collaboration with his amazing partner and three equally amazing children, one of which is Thea Thronson right here with us. Hey, guys. <laughs> yes, yeah, surprise, surprise. It's a family business, you guys. It sure is. And you all, you all see, you all watched Ezra and me before, but if you haven't, it's so yeah, on our YouTube Check channel. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Yep. It's, it's uh, good stuff. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, Jim, how's it going? Oh, pretty well. Thanks for having me. This is uh, an unexpected honor. I, I never thought anybody would uh, pay any attention to anything I wrote. So this is. Well, here we are, baby. Fabulous. <laughs> so exciting. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. So what did you bring in today? Well, uh, so uh, I one of the first short stories I ever wrote is a story called Two Funerals. Um, and uh, then I, I, I kind of condensed it down to so that I could do a 10 minute uh, spoken performance of it. So that's what I'm going to read today is the is the 10 minute version. Mm. And then uh, and then I, I guess maybe segue into how I my short stories kind of translate into play scripts. Um, awesome. And that's what I'm working on. Anyhow, so I can, uh, I can start reading it. All right. All right. Two funerals. Two funerals, that's it. Since Hannah and I got hitched, only two. Sure, I could have gone to more. Opportunities are endless. But look, I'm 46 years old, an age where things can go south at a moment's notice. And I don't need any reminders. I'm too young. Two fucking funerals. First, it was my father's 12 years ago. The bullshit was knee deep. He was a good man. He looks so peaceful. He'll be missed. There's no accountability. That's the problem. The old man was a fucking asshole. You want specifics? Okay. For one, he killed my mother. She died moving the fridge to clean behind it. It happened months before I met Hannah. Dickwad, of course, was at the VFW. He should have been home helping mom, but he wasn't. A vein popped in her brain, and that was that. He'll be happy to be with your mother. They were such a beautiful couple. The phony craps turned my stomach. Plus, Hannah and I fight after funerals. We'd barely gotten home from the old man's when Hannah asked me why I hated him. I mean, we just climbed into bed, and bam! Stupid goddamn question. Granted, I never really talked much with her about my formative years, but I have shared a few stories, like the time when I was 13 and Pops beat me with a fastball. Why? Because I celebrated after hitting a long one while he was throwing to me. Jesus. I didn't hate him, I said. Well, you certainly didn't love him. That's when I put my foot down. 
I don't want to talk about it right now, I said. Can't we just get it on? The kids were asleep, and I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity. I thought we'd agreed to it in the car. Hannah yawned and turned away from me. So I tried an old trick. I ran my fingers through her hair and massaged her scalp. It might seem weird, but sometimes it works. It didn't work. That was 12 years ago. Then earlier tonight, after we buried Daisy, another argument. We were in bed, just like last time. I'm worried about you, Hannah said, and right away I knew it. I was going to miss out again. What is it with her and this no sex after funerals thing? I mean, Jesus Christ, I had it all planned out. This time, the kids were downstairs watching a video of Old Yeller. Yeah, Old Yeller. It used to be a family favorite, okay? Because they hadn't seen it in years. I don't think Marky ever watched it. Hell, I didn't even know if the VHS player still worked. But they wanted to wallow in grief, so I got it going. Before I went upstairs, I told them, turn the volume up as loud as you want. It's still about your father, isn't it? Hannah said. Okay, fine, I said. You want to talk about my father? Let's talk. I reminded her about the time she went through chemo, and he sent her flowers and a card. Get well soon, Curly. That's what he wrote. Boy, did it piss her off. I'm over it, she said. He was trying to be nice. Over it? What? The man was a fucking douchebag. So I decided to tell a story she'd never heard before. The summer before my junior year in high school, I worked for a mechanic in town to save money for college because the old man made it abundantly clear he damn sure wouldn't pay for it. He was big into personal responsibility. One Saturday morning, I woke up with a hangover. And there he was, beating on my door, yelling, don't you have to work today? I told him I was sick. He barged in, caught one whiff of the alcohol and said, get your ass out of bed. He made me go to work. But here's the best part. As soon as I pulled out of the drive, he called in my place to the cops and told him I was driving drunk. Hannah brushed her bangs out of her eyes, and I got excited thinking sex was back on. But instead, she told me she'd already heard that one. Bullshit. No way was I going to lay there and be mocked. I groped around in the dark in my pants, got dressed, and went downstairs to get a Tums. In the living room, old Yeller had died. Lisa and Marky were sobbing, and Jake was teasing them. It's just a movie, you crybabies. And besides, it was only a dog. He's a smart kid. He'll be going to college someday, and you could bet that I'll help pay for it. Anyhow, I told him all it was time for bed. I had a headache. In the kitchen, I discovered that we were out of Tums, so I washed down some Pepto-Bismol and took a few ibuprofen. I knew for sure I'd never told Hannah that story. She must have confused it with another crazy thing my father did. It was a few years after Mom died. I remember Hannah was pregnant with Lisa at the time, and her hormones were all out of whack. Anyway, old numbnuts had finally lost his marbles. He'd become a public nuisance. After breakfast, he'd cruise I-94 and call 911 to report reckless drivers, excessive speeders, texters, even a farmer and a tractor going below the posted minimum. No one was above the law. Hannah couldn't understand it, but I did. The VFW didn't open till noon, and he was bored, so he took to vigilanteism. The cops called me to ask for help. 
screw that. That motherfucker tried to ruin my life with his personal responsibility bullshit. I told him to crucify the lunatic. I could see, though, where Hannah had confused the two stories. I mean, they both involved dipshit calling the cops. So I strode back upstairs to inform her that she was mixed up. Seriously, why would I tell Hannah that I got a DWI at 16? I crawled between the sheets and whispered, you were thinking of the time the cops called us. I think I woke her up, but it was important. I told her that the vigilante crap all started with me, and that was why I didn't like him. Oh, my God, she said. Just admit it. You screwed up tonight, plain and simple. I asked her what the hell she was talking about. Daisy, she yelled. Unbelievable. Now we were arguing about the goddamn dog. Daisy had been Hannah's idea when the old man went off the deep off the deep end with his crime fighting routine. Let's get him a dog, she said. He's probably just lonely. So yeah, we went to the pound and got him a little rat terrier looking mongrel and he stopped terrorizing the interstate. Then a few months later, Hannah made me drive back up to check on the two of them. Turd Bucket was mowing the lawn when I got there, so I sat in the car and watched. The house had a big rectangular yard and the old fart was on his John Deere rider going round and round the perimeter in ever decreasing circles. Daisy was following behind him, maybe 10 feet back. She trotted like an Arabian stallion. It was the strangest thing. When the mower turned a corner, she turned the corner. When the mower stopped, she stopped, ears pricked, her head tilted slightly. He'd start mowing again and she'd start walking 10 feet behind. It infuriated me. What the hell did he do to deserve her loyalty? I left. That was the last time I saw him alive. The old shit wafer died a year later, a heart attack, while he was mowing. By the time the neighbor discovered it, the deer had run out of gas up against a tree with my father hunched over the steering wheel. And Daisy, sitting patiently, 10 feet back, ears pricked, head tilted. Hannah insisted we take her home with us after the funeral. All the kids wanted was to have a memorial before you covered her, for God's sake. They grew up with her. Hannah was out of bed, going on and on about the stupid mutt. She turned the light on. I don't like being looked down on. Plus, I'm more comfortable arguing in the dark. So I got up, too, and turned the light off. It was going to rain, I said. She turned the light back on. No, it wasn't. I decided to leave the light on if it would make her feel better. But the fact of the matter was that I'd seen lightning while I was digging the hole for Daisy. I know what I saw, I said. Hannah turned the light off. I couldn't fucking win. She deserved better. The kids deserve better, she said. They were throwing dog biscuits all over the ground out there. We'd have vermin everywhere, I argued. What if some coyote started digging around? What then? She was a good dog, her voice wavered. Daisy was a saint. Oh, great, I thought. Here come the miracles. The goddamn Daisy miracles. The first one happened on a rainy night. I mean, it was really pissing down. And I needed to run to work. The power had gone out and the computers had to reboot. I jumped in the car, which was on the driveway, because the garage door was broken. I started backing up to turn around and ran over what felt like a big rock or something. Suddenly, Daisy shot out from under the vehicle, making a high-pitched yelping sound. What was I supposed to do? She staggered across the yard, into the woods, dragging her head on the ground. 
I didn't have time to go after her. I had to get to work to reboot the computers. When I got back home, I grabbed a coat and flashlight and headed out to search for her. She was nowhere to be found. Ring and wet, I broke the news to Hannah and the kids that Daisy was probably dead. There was a general hysteria. Did I get any thanks for slogging through the crappy conditions, risking pneumonia? No. All they cared about was the stupid fucking dog. Three days later, I arrived home from work in the evening and there was Daisy, good as new, playing in the yard with the kids. I really thought Anna would bring up the miracles, but she didn't. So I went on the offensive. I informed her that Daisy used to growl at me when no one else was around. Oh, poor you, Anna said. I saved her life, I said. That was part of the second miracle. The kids were playing outside. Jake was about nine at the time. And suddenly he burst through the back door hollering, Dad, Dad, hurry, Daisy's getting killed. I raced out to see what was going on. A huge Irish setter had Daisy's limp body clamped in its jaws. It was shaking its head violently back and forth. Get inside, I told the kids. I ran to the garage, grabbed a shovel, and took a whack at the beast. It howled, dropped Daisy, and bolted. Thank God it didn't turn on me. I don't know what I was thinking. The vet said Daisy was unlikely to last the night. She administered some antibiotics and sent us home. There was nothing else to do. Against my better judgment, I allowed a temporary dog bed in the laundry room. Of course, Daisy did make it through the night. And to cut a long story short, on the morning of the third day, Daisy was on her feet, scratching at the back door, trying to get outside. Three days, twice. Hannah didn't bring up the second miracle either. And frankly, her strategy confused me until she brushed her bangs out of her eyes again. She was toying with me. I stayed focused, though. She was not going to win this fight. I told her that despite my having saved her life, Daisy never respected me. You're worse than your father, she said. That's when I lost it. I can't remember exactly what she said next, but it was something about the kids growing up and how I, how I, did I want them to think of me? They love me, I said. Then I stormed out of the room. Downstairs, I sat on the sofa and stared for a while at the blank television screen. I wept too, you know, the first time I watched Old Yeller with Jake. Eventually, I trudged back upstairs. The whole affair had exhausted me. Hannah was sleeping, but the sight of her overwhelmed me, and I got worked up again. I just couldn't shake my disappointment. I decided to sleep on the couch, but I couldn't sleep on the couch. What's next, I thought. Separation? It's a slippery slope. Then it came to me in a flash of brilliance. I would prove that I was nothing like my jack wagon father. I went outside, got a shovel, put a flashlight in the crotch of a nearby tree and started digging. At the first sign of Daisy's black and white corpse, I got down on my knees and finished exhuming her with my hands. I carried her into the house. The last few days of her life, Daisy had lived in the kitchen by the back door. Of course, I'd had no say in the matter. Hannah made a unilateral decision. But Daisy was old by then, 13 or 14, and thankfully, it didn't take long before she died. It's hard to believe that was just this morning. I brought her back in because I wanted a do-over. I cleaned all the dirt off her fur and settled her in her death pose as best I could. It was all pretty easy to do thanks to the rigor mortis. Then, standing back to admire my work, I envisioned tomorrow's scene. We'll all wake up and write a communal poem about Daisy. We'll solemnly carry her outside as though she is royalty and gently place her wrapped in a blanket into her beautifully re-excavated grave. 
The kids can throw treats and toys in the hole for Daisy to enjoy in her next life. We'll come back inside and I'll make bacon and eggs for breakfast. Afterwards, the kids will watch Old Yeller while Hannah and I go upstairs. It was all so clear. Yep, it's gonna be perfect. That's it. Wow. That is just well, mortifying. Yep, you can see why I've never gotten a work published. <laughs> no, no. It's, look, I mean, I've read this story before. I really like this story. I forget all the, all the like flashback stuff about the dad. It's, uh, you definitely don't know where it's going to end. Yes, like it, you don't. When that, when it first started, I was like, oh, this is like going to be a little like diary entry kind of short story where they go to a funeral. And I'm like, wait, the dog? What happened? When did, when did we get here? Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read any uh, George Saunders short stories. Um, Saunderson? Saunders. Saunders, George Saunders. Yeah. He's my, um, if I have an idol, he's it. And he, he writes I'd like to think he writes stories like this, but his stories all involve like a protagonist that's just absolutely hapless um, <laughs> and uh, and makes horribly irrational decisions. So, but then defends them, right? Like such like logic in there, right? Won't let go of them once he's made them, but, right? Yeah, right. So, which was really get... captured in in this story. I think it's it's. It's funny because you can at this at once see both like, man, like this motherfucker is crazy. But at the same time, it's like, but he really doesn't think so. <laughs> like that's that's no, right. Sad. He's uh, uh, it's actually, actually I wrote this story several years ago, but it's kind of a phenomenon that's really gained traction lately over the last couple of years with Donald Trump, like the 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 middle aged white man being the victim. Right. <laughs> um, and he, he, he fits the bill perfectly. Right. 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 And just, right. Like you said, just so hapless. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, just, yeah. Genius. Good so, um, so I don't, if you have a question, go ahead. Otherwise I'll just kind of tell you. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, I wrote uh, I wrote five or six stories while I was getting my master's in English. And um, so generally it was the same group of people that were in this workshop, like 10 or 11 people. And um, no one like they, they hated my stories like they were all into like, um, you know, sci fi stuff. And oh, like, interesting. Um, they like sci fi uh, and not this. <laughs> right. I, I, again, Bad taste. I, well, so they kept saying that my stories like were were pointless. Like they don't have like there's no end here, Jim. What happened? What, like you can't end a story like that. Um, and and um, and one of my instructors said maybe Jim writes anti stories, which was fine, but. Um, so I, I never did anything with them. I sent a couple in to get for like Review. publications, but yeah. they, I, I, they were all rejected. Well, then years later, I started thinking one of the reasons that my stories don't appeal to 
general story, like typical story readers is because, and this is the way I am. Like I can walk outside and spend an entire day walking around town and I won't be able to tell you if it was cloudy or what color things were or what types of trees I walked past. But what I can tell you is I couldn't even tell you what the people I meet look like, but I can tell you what they said. Mm. Like I have this memory for dialogue and that's how all, all my memories revolve around like situations where somebody said this and somebody else said that. Right. Um, and so it occurred to me that in every one of my stories, they're not, they're not written with any like environmental details. Like which English majors love. There's no description of this character right? or his wife. The dog's described as a little bit black and white rat terrier looking mongrel. <laughs> um, but it's like, I, I'm incapable of writing like that. But what I do write is like dialogue. So like my entire stories are based on, on dialogue. Right. Well, again, like the characters are so... <clears throat> Like you said, like they're just very fleshed out, not not physically, but but uh, ideologically, I guess. Yeah, I, I feel like you get a picture of this guy. Like you can create your own image of him. Right. You get an idea of who this guy is. And the dad. From right. And from the Hannah, way they talk. And a little bit the kids. So, um, and not that I again, not that I I think I'm some kind of genius or anything. But <laughs> like, Listeners, for, for those of you who missed that, he thinks he's a genius. <laughs> obviously far from it. But I don't know if you've ever read Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants. Mm-hmm. That entire story is just lines of dialogue. Right. It's one of the best short stories I've ever read. Mm. I think. I mean, I, I find that kind of thing appealing. Right. Which is clear in the way that you write. So to cut to the chase. I decided that, you know what, because my diet, my stories are all dialogue driven. Why not see if they can right, be performed as plays? So that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to rewrite all my short stories, which there's only five or six. So it shouldn't take more than a year or two. But um, I'm trying to write them all as dramas. Cool. That's very cool because the the play that we did together with Invisible Disco, Ezra and me, was originally a short story. Yes. It was a it was a much different story. Right. But in that story, there was this entity called Ezra who had this game show where they tortured hypocrites. Mm. Um what you know, what they perceived as hypocrites. Right. And so that entire play was like an expansion of the idea of Ezra. That was just this. Right. Which wasn't totally what the story was. Right. That story was actually about a a guy and his wife who kidnapped a child because he wanted to be the mayor of a town. And then they, they killed the mother of the child and chopped her up and buried her to the hogs at a hog lot. (laughs) So some light reading. Um, Right. It was a comedy though. Right. Obviously. Much akin to this one. Right. I mean, I think when there is like so much action, like one after the other, it does turn into comedy, no matter like how brutal the action is. And that's what I like saw in the 
dialogue it's it's like so fast paced like it's like kind of nine pages but it did go by fairly quickly and I can see like people like running in and out of like being on stage and then like disappearing all of a sudden right it's like so like the chaos of it yes the chaos speaks to me it's funny yeah just inherently Mm. so where did this um you wrote the short story and in the lineup of your short stories was this one like towards the beginning towards the end this was um this was, I think, maybe my second story. Cool. So um, when you were writing it, where did your, like, w- did the character come first? The character, like, the main character, did the dad come first? How did you How did you come up with the story? The dialogue. Yeah, the dialogue. <laughs> the dialogue came first? That's, that's... Actually, the dog came first. Okay. Um, and Thea knows this. We had a, a dog. A little black and white rat terrier, mongrel, rat terrier looking, thing. looking mongrel, right? And um, I did run it over one night in the rain. Yeah, those were all true, right? Um, and oh. uh, yeah, and three days later, all the Daisy miracles. Like I, this was Thea was a very little girl, maybe three at the time, <laughs> or four, somewhere in there. Yeah, and I remember walking in soaking wet and saying to Jess. I think I just killed Daisy <laughs> and Thea. So, and Thea, and so I told the story. I mean, I, I thought it was a rock. And then the next thing, Daisy's Daisy. running into the woods, Yucky. dragging her head on the ground. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was horrifying. And, um, Terrible. and I went in and told Jess that I thought I just killed Daisy and Thea, um, Thea, like, burst into tears, got hysterical, um, and like, was like crying. Oh, when Daisy comes home, she's going to be dead. Um, and yeah, she wasn't very smart then. All right. Come on. (laughs) That was way before she went to NYU. But anyway, um, so she wanted to talk to Breezing. Right. She got better. Um, (laughs) but, uh, so, there was that incident and then the incident with the Irish setter was another one that like actually happened. And the neighbor's dog. Yeah. And we thought that, um, like she was, she was dead again. Um, and And three uh, days, it's true. Three days later. That's crazy. That's weird. Like like Jesus dog. (laughs) Right. Um, anyhow. So (laughs) I started with that like with the dog idea. And then I was thinking, so what if the father just assumed that the dog hated him because he'd run her over? (laughs) Right. To be fair. Right. And so, um, and also because the dog liked his dad and he hated his dad. Right. And so I kind of just started constructing this story around a supernatural dog, (laughs) a family that loved her and a dad that couldn't understand why the dog liked his dad. Right. And couldn't get past that. Right. Which is and a really I, good narrative device. So then I just started fleshing in the details. I started making up stories about why didn't he like his dad? Well, because of this DUI thing. Right. Um, That's hilarious. Right. Um, 
Calls the cops. Right. I mean, like, who would do that? But (laughs) what an asshole. (laughs) Right. So that's how I kind and that's how I write all my stories. I I generally speaking come up with a character. And these characters like talk to me in my head. Like Mm -hmm. they're like real characters in my mind that I have conversations with and I get to know them. And they're usually based on some version of me or somebody I've met or, you know, some combination. And then I start to think, okay, that's an interesting character. What situation can I invent for that character to flounder in? It's so interesting to me. I wonder if it was just because you were getting an English major that like short stories were that were like one of the first like mediums you landed on. Is that true? Is that a fair thing to say? Um, yeah, I can tell you why, because the, well, I actually poetry was the first thing I did. Oh, right. And I, I went, you did write a Daisy poem. Yeah. I did. Just for the Day- record. Daisy Messiah. <laughs> Is Daisy like the main character in every um Nope, it was just those, just those two <laughs> just, things. Just those two. Soon to be a play. It was um, great. She deserved a play. Yeah, she was she was an awesome dog. But um <laughs> not the point, not the point. It was funny because I went into this poetry class. I hate poetry. Right. And yes, um at least I, you know, well, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of it. Um, and so, but it was the only, like, I was trying to get a, a creative writing minor and in that semester, that was the only class I could take that mm. would like work towards that. Sure. So I go into the poetry class and I tell, and I hadn't taken like the intro to creative writing. So I went up to the professor and I asked him if I could join his class, even though I hadn't taken that. Right. Um, and he said, oh yeah, for sure. Um, and I said to him, I should tell you that I really don't like poetry. <laughs> You're obligated um, to let you know. And I'm only here because it fits my schedule. Right. So <laughs> just brutally I honest. Just, well, I want you to know that my poems are probably going to suck, <laughs> but I'll do my best. That's literally me every time I walk into a class, except I don't say it out loud. <laughs> well, <Hi. laughs> right. Um, I think he admired the honesty. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Or maybe he just felt bad for me because I was a middle-aged guy on a college campus. It's like, but what are you doing here? I get right. Well, the number of times that like I'd be walking down the hallway and like a parent oh, God. would be walking with like like an orientation student and they would assume I was like Can you help me? They, well, they yeah, they'd assume I was a custodial staff or something. <laughs> um with your paint sweatered jeans. Right. So oh. Anyway, uh, don't assume people. That's the moral of this episode. <laughs> but the reason I took to writing short stories, that, that was the thing that I really like zoomed in on was because there was an incredible instructor that I had the next semester that just really, I mean, he just, he just said a lot of nice things. And, and so I encouraged him. Yeah. I kept, kept going back for more. Yeah. Well, I only ask that because it seems to me like the, like having like fully realized characters in your head talking to you, like sounds to me that like the way that I start writing plays. So it's just interesting to me that, that the medium that would speak to you first was short story, but then it makes a lot of sense to me that these short stories translate really well to plays. 
Yeah. And I, I mean, to be honest, I'd never even considered writing a play until I wrote Ezra as a play. That's interesting. Was that also for school, Ezra and me? Yeah. So then I, um, I was getting a, uh, after I got my master's in English, I thought, you know what? I've taken a few communication classes too. I could probably get a communication master's in a year. So I went over to the communication department and asked them if I could enroll in their master's program. And they said, sure. Um, Everyone's so agreeable at this school. They were. Um, <laughs> None of this ever happened to me. I had at to like, NYU, cry and they're like, no. say no. <laughs> well, wait, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's good. I know it's great. But uh, so uh, I got a uh, master's in communication performance. Right. And my thesis advisor was this extremely eccentric woman, just like a bundle of energy, but wild, crazy. <laughs> um, and just like cannot quell her enthusiasm. Love that. Um, <laughs> right. So she's like, uh, I said, so I, I, I know I have to do like a thesis type project. I don't know. Like I've never written a play. I don't know. Well, have you ever written anything? I said, I've got some short stories. Share them with me. I want to read them. So she read, she read them and she said, Jim, you could make any one of these into a play. And so. So is, so, is it Daniela? Danielle. Yeah. Danielle. So I said, well, then let's make Ezra a play. Let's do that. She said, I love and that. away we went. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because I know that like dialogue is very natural to Thea as well. And now you and most of our guests, including me, they all struggle with dialogue except for the two of you. Mm. And I'm starting to think it's like a family thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just us. Yeah. <laughs> just the two of you. Everyone comes in and we're like, writer's block, like dialogue is so hard. And I'm like, yes. And you two are like, yeah, they just speak to me. My characters speak to me. Yeah, I I, I don't know. Like I said, I, I had these conversations in my head. So it's just, then it's just a matter of trying to type fast enough to get them down. Right. How long does it take you to write something like this? Um, well, you know, a wise person once said to me that, everything you write is, is just the latest draft. Like there's no final thing. So, you know, I could take this out and work on it again, obviously. Um, but like, I don't know, it probably took, um, from like conception of the idea to something that I presented that was polished enough to present to my, um, um, circle. Uh, it probably took three or four days. Yeah. yeah yeah that's fast oh i thought it was exhausting no that's (laughs) i mean it's it's, no no discrediting to the exhaustiveness but having written with you a couple of times now it does strike me how um like quickly you're able to like for example where we just worked together on another play that was transitioned from one of your short stories called the survey Mm -hmm. and that you were home for what four days before we had like a working draft of that yeah 
which is yep. not not my experience, which is cool. Yeah, that was that was pretty quick. Yeah. But it's 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 cool to to experience the like like the characters go on tangents and like it just it seems to come pretty naturally for you, which is cool. Yeah, I I don't know. I did I mean a lot of it is as I'm reading through like I'll write down something and then I'll be like, no, they'd respond with this. this yeah. And like you said, it goes off on some kind of tangent and um, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I hear voices. So right. Great. In any other <laughs> profession. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you too, I guess, talk a little bit about co-writing? How does that work? How does that differ from like when you're alone, do you write together or like, you yeah. just exchange drafts what do you do well do you mind if i jump in no go for it i was just gonna say when i was in school you were also in school for mm-hmm. all, all of it right yeah so i would always find myself writing like essays and f- freshman year of college i realized i had no idea how to critically think which was a really fun <laughs> thing to realize um and so I was like going to all these appointments at the writing center and stuff and like leaving like more confused than I went in, you know, that feeling where it's just like, I think I have to drop out <laughs> because I have no I'm... idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started sending you, Papa, my drafts um, and being like, please help. <laughs> um, and so then we kind of established, but that was a little bit different because it was for a more academic setting. Um, but we kind of established, like, uh, send each other things back and forth, get mm-hmm. your comments, get your, like, like live feedback. And Google yep. Docs was great for that because you could just put a comment on. Um, and so we kind of established that relationship, like, several years ago, like, six years ago now. And that was reciprocal, too. I mean, right. I sent you a lot of my stuff saying, you know, what do you think? Do these right. characters work? You know? Yeah. And so then this most recent time that I was in Iowa, um, when you were home more than you had been previously, we were like, we should write some stuff together. Um, and so we started a full length play, a three act play. Mm-hmm. And we wrote a 10 minute Zoom play. Yep. We're writing a short film. Yep. And we're also in the process of writing an album. If you've listened to episode one, Time Numbs will eventually be, you know, somewhere for distribution. But that's 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 harder for me. <laughs> well, if you want to hear my song lyrics, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll hit you with those. Oh, please. Sure, please. Have you heard these, Dad? I'll, no. You haven't heard the song lyrics? It's okay. called, it's called, Hold On a Minute, Jesus. Yeah, we I love know. satire in this family. That's what we live for. It is so lovely that like you two have um, that like work relationship while like, you know, I guess it's kind of hard to work with your family, no matter what you do. Right. Yeah, it can be. And it's not always like, we're not always on the same page for sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Which I think just is, is, I assume that's how any uh, creative duo or team works. Um, but it is, it is, it is nice that we have, um, let me, let me just say Dennis that it is not all like 
roses. <laughs> I mean, there are there are thorns. And, okay. And I help um, me and our youngest. I sometimes ask me to help with editing stuff or um, you know rewording stuff, and and then we argue about about the ideas that I have and. I mean, when Thea and I wrote the survey, there were there were some pretty heated conversations. Heated discussions. <laughs> um, and so one thing I would say, if you're collaborating with anybody else in writing something, I, I don't, I think that if you go into it as, hey, we're two equal people, let's let's start writing something together. I think you're gonna butt heads more than if you have a situation where one person says, Hey, I started this thing. I really would appreciate if you want to kind of jump on board. But so like one person has a bigger stake in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And can kind of be like, no, here's what I was really thinking, as opposed to two people just arguing about who has the bigger stake. Right. Or who gets to make a decision in a a certain moment or... um, not yeah, that. that's super. That's a fair assessment. Yeah. And it makes sense that it's like mutual. So you send her stuff and then she reaches out to you. Right. But like, like her work, she's asking for my input. She's not asking me to rewrite it or mm-hmm. to like make executive decisions on it. And my work, I'm asking for her input. But again, not asking for executive decisions to be made. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, a that's a good that's a good point because one of the troubles we ran into with the survey which eventually worked out but one of the things that was hard about it was that we both had um previously written things previously written characters that were in the play Mm. and so it was difficult to kind of figure out like well who makes the decision ultimately right it's called now hold on a minute jesus it will be a song one day it's going to be a song it's kind of in the outlaw like David Allen Coe type song. So I'll, I'll say it with like, a, went down a, to like a Southern kind of. accent. Yeah. <laughs> I headed to the light on the day I died, marching toward the gates of paradise. When Jesus appeared all dressed in white, I knew that I had lived my life right, faith justified. From the folds of his robe, he extracted a book, put on his glasses and took a hard look. But when he reached down and tinkled a small golden bell, the rhyme scheme informed me I was going to hell. Now, hold on a minute, Lord. There must be a mistake. I'm not sure how you scored it, but give me a break. Because I spent Sundays in church, never stole, rarely lied, didn't drink, cheat, or curse. I damn near almost tithed. I read the good book, and I lived in the light. And yes, sweet Jesus, I prayed every night. With fire in his eyes, the good Lord replied, I commanded you give all you have to the poor, love your enemies and all those who knock at your door. But you wallowed in greed, ignored those in need and prayed for a country that glorifies war. Son, I don't much care if you cuss when you speak. I'm concerned with your failure to turn the other cheek. Because heaven, my friend, is reserved for the meek. All covered in sweat, I woke with a scream. I wasn't in hell. It had all been a dream. On trembling knees, I called dial a prayer, and for $9.99, prayed away my nightmare. I stuttered and stammered, ranted and raved, till the voice on the phone assured me, you're saved. Then giving glory to God, I wept with relief as I slipped back between my organic silk sheets. 
You were wrong, dreamed Jesus. You made a mistake. The real Christ loves me and died for my sake. That's why I spend Sundays in church. Never steal, rarely lie. I buy Christian merch and I wear it with pride. Look down, sweet Lord, shine your heavenly light and have mercy. Because I prayed my heart out tonight. Then just to be safe and to give my mind peace, I rolled over and turned the other cheek. Nice. So it is. You might be seeing a, a theme. <laughs> <laughs> um, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Well, I just wanted to ask. You said um, George Saunders is 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 a writing idol, um, which makes sense with with the way that that he writes characters and and situations and dramatic irony and satire. Um, are there other writers or? Uh, uh love inspiring to you. Uh, Raymond Carver, um, uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, trying to think who else I I haven't I haven't read a lot lately. Um, and all my time. books all my books are at home, and I'm in a hotel room, so I can't even look down at the bookshelf. Um, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I would say uh, if, um, and I'm just talking about American authors, obviously, I mean, Mark Twain, Please. to me, he's like the king of satire. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I, I would say that if you want, if anyone, in my opinion, wanted to read the, the, the best of American short stories, and I'm sorry, that this is like, these are all white guys. And um, and I know that's a sad state of affairs, but um, I, I believe they were all genuinely like excellent authors. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and I, I do have several collections by women uh, and non-gendered folks and but in fact, I have quite a few books of poetry um, from a, well, by uh, a, a non-gendered, um, I, I, don't, I don't know what the right terminology is. Yes, non-binary, thank you. Um, uh, poet, cool. um, who I really like even though I said I don't like poetry, it turns out that I did. <laughs> um, As it turns out. Um, if it's the right kind of poetry, you know, the thing is that I had in my head that like poetry was roses are red, violets are blue. Like, right. you know, that's what I thought poetry was. Yeah. I just didn't know. I well, mean, I was 50 years old and so I didn't many know. Schools teach like bad poetry in my humble opinion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you just don't get exposed to good poetry. That's anyway, yeah. that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> What do you do when you have the writer's block? Or like, do you even get writer's block? I feel like you don't. Uh, no, I, so what I do is um, I just don't write anything. <laughs> that's what I do. <laughs> yes, that's um, what you said. Yeah, you said I'd say that? No, that's what I said in my episode. I was yeah. like, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I don't, the thing is that I feel like writer's block is a um, product of like pressure. Capitalism. Well, what? you feel like, okay, I'm a writer and I have to write 
and I can't, I'm not getting any ideas. Whereas I'm not a writer, I'm a carpenter who happens to write exactly when, when I have an idea the that I think strikes. is worth writing down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll, and then I'll like be frantic for a couple of days. But in the meantime, can attest. I, I go to work at six o'clock in the morning. I come home at five 30 at night. I jump in the shower, I eat dinner and go to bed. Yeah. So yeah, I, I that's probably a pretty ridiculous answer, but no, I is, don't think so. No, I mean well, that's this is the answer the that we got in our first episode. <laughs> this here. is the problem with ri- inviting non-writers to a writer's workshop. No, this is why we invite non-writers <laughs> yeah. on yeah. the podcast. Because first of all, you are a writer, but it's like the the concept of writer's block only exists because of deadlines, really. Right. I think so. Um whether they're yeah. self-imposed or externally imposed, really. What do you um, do for writer's block, Dennis? Listen I, to episode four on Total <laughs> 1000. Oh, yes, you got to ask that same question? <laughs> we ask every time. Oh, boy. We ask this question every time because it's the writer's block party. That's what the exactly. podcast is. Oh, I didn't get that. Like our signature See? question. I, got it. I don't even remember what I said in my episode, um, but like I kind of like try to push through it. Cry. Muscle through. Muscle through, yeah. Yeah, don't. Yeah. Yeah, don't. Don't do that. (laughs) My takeaway from our season two will be don't do that. Yeah. Well, I just thought you were laughing at Thea because she cried when her dog died. Anyway. (laughs) That's true. Hey. Uh, Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully I haven't embarrassed anybody. Not uh, at all. uh, Amazing. Lack of finesse or whatever you might oh, want to say no it's been it's been an absolute <coughs> pleasure yes thank you so much for coming it was such a pleasure to have you well thank um, you for inviting me i should also say that you are our first guest that's like a male identifying guest yeah oh hey well, all right here we are here we are I, I really do believe and i know i'm way behind the curve on this <laughs> but uh I, I tell people all the time, we are, before I leave this planet, I believe that there, there will not be a gender binary. That yeah. nobody will be called he or she ever again. Um, it's happening pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so here's to hoping for that. But Here's to that. Cheers um, to that. Cheers to that. All right, um, and I, once I get this uh, play script written, I'll, I'll, you'll be the first people to get it. Yes, thank you so much. Thank we you so much forward. for coming today, and thank you so much for coming back to Invisible Disco Productions. Yes, so nice it's my you. pleasure. So nice to have you. Thank you for your support. Of thank course. you. All nice. right, and thank you, listeners, for listening. Follow us on Instagram at Invisible Disco Productions, and have a great week. Writer's Block Party was created by Invisible Disco Productions. It's produced by Amelia Annan, Dennis Blatt, Lauren Montez, Thea Thronson, Colleen Annan, Jess Thronson, and Jim Keane. And is edited by Noah Friend. If you enjoyed this, check us out at IDP Presents WBP on Twitter and at Invisible Disco Productions on Instagram and Patreon. Thanks and have a great week.